This is from Matthew 16, the passage we began with last week. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not withstand it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together today. <clears throat> God, I just pray, Lord, that you help us to lift up our hearts to you as we listen to the word be preached. God, soften our hearts. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our heart, the truth of your word in our hearts, God, um, especially just on this word, God, that you sent your son Jesus and he is the Messiah and the Savior. Lord, um, I pray, Heavenly Father, that this truth would sink deeper into our hearts, Lord, and would we recognize um, just how great his saving power is, God, um, in our, for our lives, Lord, and, and how far his salvation extends into every area of our lives, Lord, um, Heavenly Father. So I pray, God, that you would just uh, help us to understand your word freshly today, Lord. Help us to receive this truth freshly today, Heavenly Father. And we ask this in, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jacob. This little conversation between Jesus and his disciples is a massive epoch, universe changing conversation. Before anyone else, Peter, Simon Peter at that point, before anyone else, Peter understands what Jesus came to open all of our eyes to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the long promised Messiah, the King of Israel, the ruler of the world, and the son of the living God. It is this God-given faith in who Jesus is that will be the foundation upon which Jesus will build his church. Jesus in this conversation is highlighting Peter, not as Pope, not as first among the apostles, but as the first, as we see in the passage, true explicit believer, the one who has been given the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and believes this truth. He has received from God the truth about Jesus. And Jesus says, it is on this faith 
in people who see that I will build my church, the church that will overcome death itself. It is the people who have received and accepted from my father the truth about me that will overcome. And this is what the church is. There is one global, eternal, universal church. Everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who is given faith by the Father to see who Jesus Christ is, is part of this church. But Jesus intends that our belonging to that universal one global church be expressed in our belonging to and caring for a specific community of people in a specific place and time. And this is what I sought to bring you last week. This idea that is part of this passage here today, as we'll see in Matthew 16, that belonging to the church universal is intended by Christ to be expressed in you and I being committed to a church local. That belonging and caring for and being part of the church universal is expressed in being committed to and caring for a church local. And my goal both that last week and this week is that you would be more convinced of this. Not because I'm saying it, but because of the word of God, that you wouldn't take it from me, but that you would see it in scripture and that you would come to a deeper love for, a deeper treasuring of, a deeper honoring of your brothers and sisters in this room and all local churches So last week I began asking us to see this truth more deeply that belonging to the church universal is expressed in belonging, caring for a church local. I started with the one another's and I asked us to consider all these commandments to, as the scriptures proclaim, be devoted to one another, bear one another's burdens, mourn with each other, comfort each other, Gently and patiently be long-suffering with each other's faults and weaknesses. Confess our sins to one another. Speak the truth to one another to build each other up. To pray fervently for one another. To be ready to counsel each other. To help one another out of sin. To show hospitality to each other. To share our goods, our material treasure with those in need among us. To admonish even correct one another, to teach one another, to sing with one another, to the rejoice with each other, to not neglect meeting with one another. All these commands from scripture can only be obeyed in the context of people. Most of the things the Bible calls us to do in this world cannot be obeyed in our quiet time by ourselves. They can only be obeyed in the context, or many of them, not most of them can only be obeyed in the context of God's people and walking with them. That's what all the one another's explain to us, imply to us. But it does beg the question still, is it really necessary to be a, a member of a local church? Like, can't we just be with other Christians moving around, 
from group to group or maybe just staying with a group for a while and going to another group without ever really being explicit about saying, this is my church for this season. These are the people that I'm walking with for this season. Does the Bible really ask us to say, this is my church? Or to put it another way, is there really supposed to be a, an identifiable, defined group of people called a local church committed to each other? And what I'm saying to you this morning again is, yes, that is what scripture really tells us. Not me, you know, the guy who has fleshly reasons to have a big church or to have an exciting church. That's not what you need. You need the scriptures to call you to be faithful to the local church if that's what they're doing. So today I'd like to explain a couple of really clear, identical reasons why membership in a local church is actually called for in scripture. And, and if you're, if it's, I, we do have some visitors this morning. I just want to say thank you for being with us. I, I think the road we're going to take today is going to be a, a little bit wild at times as we look at this. And you're, you're probably going to be like, what in the world? So I just want to put that out in front of you guys. I understand that. No intention to, um, to be imposing or rude in what I'm saying. I'm trying to just open up the scriptures for our church and you're here and I'm glad you're here. I hope you feel welcomed and cared for. But I wanna say that, I wanna say that uh, in a couple of ways, what we'll talk about today may be a little bit off road for, for your, what you're used to. Maybe not, I don't know. But, um, but I was sensitive about this message when I, I did meet a few of our guests today and I want you to know that we're glad you're here and we care about you. So a couple of reasons that are really crucial to understand about why we are called to be part of a local church explicitly, openly, and definitively. First, the concept of pastoring necessitates people commit to a community of believers. The concept of pastoring in scripture makes it necessary for people to be committed to a local church. And let me say one other qualifier to our members here. Some of the stuff you've heard before, we've talked about these things before, but I want to ask you to really listen anyway. I want to ask you to let these words, if you can, sink deep. Because I think there's more for us today than just, oh, we've heard this before. There, there has been for me as I've rehearsed these truths and looked deeper into them. So coming back again, the concept of pastoring necessitates commitment, identifying yourself with a specific community of believers. In the book of Acts, we see that everywhere Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journeys, they planted churches. They did not just call individuals. They founded small communities of believers meant to care for each other. But in Acts 14.23, we read and we see it narratively in other places that as these churches matured, Paul and Barnabas went back to these churches and they appointed elders to shepherd, or it's the same word, to pastor the flocks. They appointed this role called elder to pastor the flock of God. So that's why elder and pastor, for instance, in our church are interchangeable terms. Elders were to pastor by being men of character who could also feed the church by teaching God's word to them and who could protect 
the church from false doctrine. And Peter commands these elders not to lord it over the flock with harshness or vanity or greed, but to be loving examples, gentle and patient with the flock. And Peter says something obvious though, and worth considering. He calls the elders to quote, shepherd the flock among you. Shepherd the flock among you. In other words, God doesn't tell pastors to shepherd flocks far from them, but among them. The people are with them and they are with the people. Obviously, knowing people over time is crucial to caring for them well. This is obvious in our friendships, but it's no less true in relationships between pastors and the flock. But this also begs the question, what pastor or elder can shepherd a sheep per God's command to do so if they don't know if that person is under their care? And how can the flock or a sheep in the flock, so to speak, be cared for by a shepherd if they don't know if that person is really a pastor in their life that they're called to be with, that they've committed themselves to? In Hebrews 13, 7, we see another more sobering dimension of pastoring. First, the author of Hebrews tells the church to submit to the elders among them. And this means obey them as they teach you God's word. I want to make that really clear. Not obey them and submit to them as they teach their own ideas or tell you things that are extra biblical or tell you to do things that are not commanded by Jesus. I'm going to make that really clear. Pastors and elders in any church have authority to call you to obey Jesus and his words, not call you to obey themselves. That's why I can say things like, hey, I really think it might be great if you joined a DR. <laughs> but I cannot command you to because God's word does not command you to. I can command you to love each other, to care for each other, to be long-suffering with one another, to be faithful to each other, to pray fervently with each other. I can't command you to have a 45-hour quiet time and let's go through the book of John and our quiet times together in a text group. I can offer that, but I can't tell you to do that. But what I can call you to, and I am called to do, is to call you to obey what Jesus says. My job is to repeat and, and try to help you understand his words and his call on your life. That's what an elder, a pastor is supposed to do. And in that vein, the author of Hebrews can say, obey your pastors and elders. But here's the sobering thing for pastors and elders. He tells them why they should do this. He says, for they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account The flock are called to follow the spiritual shepherding of pastors as they lead the flock by the word of God and not their own words. And these leaders, the author says, have to give an account before God for the flock among them. This passage is telling us that God is going to hold me accountable for what happens to you who are committed to this church. And this is tremendously sobering for anyone in pastoral ministry but it's also God's plan for pastors and churches 
And he gives grace for that. This isn't telling me that I'm going to be responsible for all the decisions you make of whether to follow Jesus or not. But it is telling me that it's my job to try to call you and pursue you and beseech you and encourage you to follow Jesus. And as we'll see later, it's actually all of our jobs. If you didn't already get that from the one another's, it is all of our jobs. But I, elders are going to be called to give an account in a unique way. But, but here's the thing I'm trying to ask you to see. What pastor can give an account to God for people he doesn't know whether or not they're his? Past his flock. And what believer can follow the spiritual care of a pastor if that believer doesn't know if they're really committed to that pastor's spiritual care? So it, it, it just doesn't work unless people can say, for this season, this is my church. And an elder can say, for this season, you're part of the flock that I've been called by God to answer for. Do you see that? It doesn't mean that we have to fill out forms or put fingerprints on a sheet of paper or, or roll call every Sunday. It can look lots of different ways. But it can't mean that you don't know and I don't know what our relationship is. It can't. It doesn't work. So this dynamic between top pastors and members commanded by God necessitates that people know what specific church community they belong to, who their pastors are, and it requires pastors to know who the flock is. But more sobering and more wild to me, I use that word wild uh, carefully, but it is, it is how I feel shaken by this today, as I've, this, this week as I've read through this again. Sober, maybe is a better word. It is the implications that come from what is historically called church discipline. So we're moving on for elders and, and sheep as a proof for why we are called to be part of a local church. And we're moving into this other area called church discipline, historically called church discipline. The concept of church discipline, it necessitates commitment to a specific community. We first see this concept mentioned in our text this morning. Notice what Jesus says after he sees Peter's faith and declares that in light of that faith, he's going to build his church. He says these strange words. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What in the world is Jesus talking about? The next time we see this language, almost exactly like this, is, is two chapters later in Matthew 18, where Jesus is not just talking to Peter who has believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He's talking to all people theoretically who will believe that Jesus is the Messiah and will follow him, trusting him and walking with him in a church. The next time we hear this talk of loosening and binding, and it comes in the context of this idea we call church discipline. Listen to this from Matthew 18, 15 through 18. <clears throat> 
Jesus is telling the disciples this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that the mouth of two or three witnesses may confirm every fact. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. No qualification, the church, the ecclesia, the group of believers. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, meaning treat him as an unbeliever. Do not consider him as part of the church any longer. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus is explaining a process historically known to us called church discipline. He's saying when someone is stuck in a significant sin, he's not talking about, there, there, there are other Sundays and, and other articles we can read. I, I can't go deep diving into it. But Jesus is not talking about going and confronting someone because they, um, they were late to your meeting with them. He's not talking about going and potentially bringing church discipline about to, to somebody because um, they were in a bad mood and they, they said something, you know, off color in the morning. And he's talking about someone who's significantly entrenched in a sin that you see and you go to them and you say, hey, this is not the way to walk with Jesus. And if he doesn't listen, you bring some other people into that person's life and you try to get them to see how serious this is. They need to come back to God. And if he refuses to listen to those people, then you go to the church. And you say, I've tried to reach my brother. And, you know, I think because it's helpful to try to concretize this, we'll often use the example of someone who is committing adultery and cheating on their wife, having an affair, and, and people are going to this person saying, turn, turn, and they, they just won't. And Jesus says, if they won't listen to you, if they won't listen to two or three others coming, and obviously a lot more repair will be needed in that kind of situation, then bring them before the entire church and declare them, and they won't physically be there probably, but declare them not a part of the church of God, not a part of God's people right now. And then he says what he said to Matthew, what he said to Peter, after saying this, explaining this, he says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And this is where it's crazy to me and, and sobering to me. He's saying, when you declare, if you've done this right and faithfully, God's not saying we can just take these keys and go renegade with them and start abusing people and falsely accusing people. He's smarter than that. He's not gonna underwrite that kind of thing. But he's saying, if you really see someone who's really sinning and not repenting and you bring them before the church and they will not repent and you say, you are not part of the church. God is saying, I have declared they are not part of my church. 
When you do it, I have declared it. When you say to that man who won't be faithful to his wife, he's not part of my people. I'm saying it through you. He's not part of my people. This is what Jesus means when he says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You can open and close through the gospel, through your faith in me. You have the authority. The church has the authority to open and close the door. And whatever you decide, if you're being faithful to me, I will have already decided. What a believing church community together proclaims. What a believing church community together proclaims over its members. If the church is seeking to be faithful, testifies to their position before God. This is astounding. I do not know what else to do with these words of the Lord. And I'll show you more words that, that I think verify this. We see this truth dramatically illustrated in 1 Corinthians 5. A member of the church there is sleeping with his stepmother or possibly his mother, but it's probably, Lord willing, his stepmother. But it's wrong. It's sinful. The man will not repent. In fact, the church is actually proud of it. They have a permissive view of this sin. And they're, they're proud of their, their flexibility and their permissiveness and their open-mindedness. And Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 5 that they should be ashamed of that. Like they should be ashamed of this. Even, he says, even people who aren't believers know this is wrong. And he says, he calls the church to repent. And he commands them to excommunicate this unrepentant member. And in verses 4 to 5, this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 5, he says this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and the power of our Lord Jesus with the power of our Lord Jesus. This is not just like a church meeting to talk about the budget. He's saying you come together as a people. I, the apostle Paul, am with you in spirit just like he is today. And he says, the power of our Lord Jesus is with you, just like he is today in this room, because he's faithful to his church. He says this, you church are to deliver this unrepentant man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How's that for like potluck? I mean, does that, does that change your view of like what a local church is? Like uh, what's happening over at that church? I don't know. It's kind of, music's kind of okay and donuts are good. Their room's always cold. I don't like that they worship with the lights down so much. I'm going to try some other place. This is, this is not trivial stuff.
Now there's mystery here in what Paul's saying. There's some things that theologians struggle with to this day, I struggle with. But what we can ascertain, what we can understand is absolutely astounding. This group of imperfect people like you and I who struggle to walk with Jesus, but try to walk with Jesus, <laughs> are being called to, to assemble as one local body. They know who they are. They knew who's part of this body. They come together. And, and as those who know this man, they know what, he've, what he's done. They've, they've, they've been through it with him already. He's not repenting. Paul says, you are called to use that binding and loosing authority that Jesus talks about in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And with the keys of heaven that the church has been given, you're called to declare that this man is no longer part of God's kingdom, God's people. Which means in Paul's mind, they were to quote, deliver this man to Satan. That's the equivalent of saying, you're not part of the church. You're not part of God's people. You're either in God's kingdom or you're under Satan's dominion. And they're saying that, what's astounding too is Paul could have done this on his own from his prison in Rome or wherever he was writing his letter. But he says, no, you do it. This is your job, church. I'll be there with you. Jesus will be there with you. We'll be there with you in spirit. But this is your job. Jesus didn't give the keys of the kingdom just to Peter or just to popes or just to pastors and elders. He gives them to the whole church. Get off the couch, church, and do what needs to be done for this guy. He needs this. He can't go around thinking that he's part of God's people. He needs to be sobered about his real condition. So he says, expel the immoral brother, correlating that with what he says earlier, delivering him to Satan. Now, the goal of this, this is really crucial to keep in mind. The goal of this, the goal of all church discipline is the restoration, the redemption of this man. That's always the goal of church discipline is to care and save and rescue. Apparently, best understanding Paul has in mind that this man would experience the pain of what it means to go through severe estrangement from the care of God that he had been enjoying as part of the church. And by falling under Satan's oppression, he would realize his predicament and repent and turn to God and be saved from eternal damnation. That is the way that I understand when Paul says, deliver him to be to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, his humanity, so that he, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And there may be some other interpretations. But that's an arguably good one. From, from everything I understand, I don't think I'm telling you something I'm just trying to make up out of the blue. There's much difficult, there's much difficulty in understanding all this, but, but, but what is obvious here? What's obvious here, if we step back, is that what is involved in church discipline 
supposes that there is a community of believers that knows this man, that belongs, belonged to this man and to whom he belonged. And now that has to change definitively until that man repents. The entire process of church discipline in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, necessitates people who know each other and are committed to watch over each other. And if necessary, for the sake of rebelling sinners, to go after them, to go after them, to go after them, and if necessary, to even expel them from the church so that they might wake up to their dreadful state and be rescued and be saved. It's bigger than coffee and donuts. It's bigger than drums or organs. God's called us to eternally significant work watching over each other. And so many of us, including me, are, I just take this too lightly. like God puts this key, the kingdom of heaven in our hands and we're just like, are you crazy? I'm just lonely and wanted a cool place to meet some young people or I just like that preacher and how he preaches. So I like going there once a week and hearing some stuff or he preaches really long, so I'm going to go over here. I mean, I get it. I'm, I'm, I, I get it. I walk in all those ways. I have walked in all those ways. And it's just like the gravity of what it means to be a local church from these texts is so sobering to me. So one practical application is very simple. Find yourself and commit yourself to a local church that is centered on Jesus Christ. A church that believes in him as he is revealed in God's word. And if you're part of this church, I'm not inviting you to go somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, you, you, I can't keep you. It's not my job. But it's not what I mean. I, I mean, make sure that you're trying to figure out and taking seriously God's call. If you're a believer in Jesus, that is. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you, we need to start with that. <laughs> like, do I really believe what Peter believed? Do I really receive what God revealed to Peter? That Jesus is the Christ, the living God. That comes first. But if you've already come to that place and you're already, you've already said, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I want to follow him with my life. Then you're called to commit to a local believer. To, to a local group of believers who will follow Jesus. It doesn't mean you do that tomorrow like that, not thinking carefully about it, but it also, it doesn't mean that it goes down the priority scale. So make sure that you're committed to try to live out the one another's, that you know who your pastors are and they know who you are and that you're willing to walk out church discipline if necessary. That's what this message and last message is saying very practically. But here's an, another application that should just resonate with us deeper. We've got to realize the holiness 
of the local church and her mission. We've got to come to grips with and marinate in and really embrace the gravity of the local church and her mission. The church is not about being a social club, finding a cool organization once a week to hear some good talks, some songs to feel good from that you sang. All that hopefully happens. But the church is the people of God who've been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Not for the sake of abusing or condemning, but in order to affirm one another's place in God's kingdom. And if necessary, get very serious for those who are rebelling against it. The church has been given the duty to declare in the fear of God who belongs to his kingdom. For the sake of repentance, who is expelled so that they might be saved and persevere. What we're being called to, brothers and sisters, is faithfulness to one another to see that each of us makes it into the arms of Jesus safely. That's what we're being called to, to see that each of us makes it into the arms of Jesus safely. That's what he has put in your hands when you become part of a church. We have different roles in doing that, different gifts to do that, but that's what we're called to do. The fifth stanza of the Army Ranger Creed states, I shall never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. It's the fifth stanza of the Army Ranger Creed. It was just Veterans Day a couple of days ago. I came upon this again. I shall never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. So for decades, it's been anathema to leave someone behind in the armed forces. You are called, if you're a service man or woman, you are called to bring your brother or sister home, no matter what. And we all find that commandment so powerful, so stirring. There's something in all of us that values that kind of courageous devotion to faithfulness to someone in need. We love it. We, we should. We should praise it. We do. And that resonates with us, all people, because we're made in the image of God. And that's in his heart. That's what's in his heart. I will be faithful. I will sacrifice to save Jesus longs for his church to be a place where his people resonate with that too. Where his people are committed to be faithful to see one another make it home. That's what church is for, brothers and sisters. That's what we're here for, to see that we make it home to him. That's what all the one another's are for. So that most of us never ever get to the place of, of Matthew 18, formal discipline. Because we've been one another so well for so long, it's a delight to stay in fellowship with each other. It's a joy. There's a place to go when we're struggling. There's a place to confess when we're running. There's a place to, to take comfort when we're despairing. So we never, we never get close to the end of Matthew 18. But should that be needed, the church is a place where people, for the sake of that straying sinner are willing to do it 
That's what we're here for, to see that we make it home to Jesus, to be faithful to another. In Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 28, I'm almost done, so I'm just please hold on for just a few more minutes. In Ezekiel 28, God is grieved. I want you to see God's heart for faithfulness here. God is grieved and angry at how the leaders of Israel have abandoned his people. And he says this, Ezekiel says this, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, no real shepherd, he's saying. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And so God promises. Fine. No shepherds. Fine. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. He's not going to just keep sending other people. I'm coming. I'm coming to do this. What you won't do. I'm coming. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. 600 years later in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It's me. I've come. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep and sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And Jesus doesn't lay his life down only. He doesn't only lay it down. He sees that those sheep make it home. A few moments later, he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And brothers and sisters, That Jesus who came to shepherd his sheep, who says, I will lose none that all the father has given me, that Jesus, he calls you his body. 
He calls you his body. He calls you his arms and his hands, his eyes and his ears and his feet. He's put his spirit in you to continue his work to save and preserve his people. So that all of his sheep are accounted for and helped and fed and make it home. That's what pastors knowing their flock is about. That's what the flock knowing who their pastor is about or pastors, Lord willing, Lord, bring us more elders, please. That's what the one another's are about. You loving each other and being faithful to each other. That's what going to your brother in private to correct him in gentleness and, and, in, and in secrecy, hopefully, and being willing to, to be part of church discipline is about that God forbid we would need to do that. It's about doing Jesus' work to see that all his people make it home. And that's what our, our little methodologies are supposed to be about. The membership classes and DRs and community groups, whatever type of fellowship that God lays on your heart. It's about seeing that God's sheep are accounted for. That we aren't a faithless church. But, but, but we glorify God by representing this faithful Lord who goes after his people to see that they make it home. So let's commit ourselves to one another and to the church for that end. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I need your help as a pastor in this church to repent in areas where I have not represented you in the way that you're calling me to be a faithful pastor and your people need help to see. And some of this may not be repentance issue as much as just an not understanding issue and not seeing issue. For all of us, Lord, we, we, we see so imperfectly. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a cleansing work that we would come to grips again with the holy call you've given us to be a church, to watch over one another. That we would, in whatever ways you're calling us to, we take seriously the one another's. We take seriously what it means to be pastors and, and sheep. We take seriously what it means, Lord, to be willing to, in gentleness, bring each other back. And God, help me to make it easier, not harder for people to know their place in doing that. I pray that this church would be a, a church where your word is honored. Also, your people are equipped better and better to do your work. I pray you'd help us have wisdom that's, that's needed to grow. Not necessarily numerically, though if you will, we would, we would welcome that, Lord. But to grow in faithfulness to each other. We don't know if you're calling us to be a big church. We know you're calling us to be a faithful church. 